Welcome into another edition of the Dan and Victory podcast, only available on musketeerreport.com. I am Rick, and for this edition of the podcast, I am joined by the legend, Brian Snow. Brian, Wednesday is the start of the early signing period here, and uh, Xavier has a couple commitments. We're going to talk about those guys, uh, what the Musketeers are getting, what's ahead in recruiting, and then we'll talk about the current team as well. First of all, Cesar Edwards, Elijah Tucker, the two commitments Xavier has in this class. Cesar, a four-star, ranked 91 by you guys at 24-7, and Elijah Tucker, a three-star, ranked 144 in your latest rankings. Let's just start with kind of like skill set type of player. What is Xavier getting in these two guys? Well, they're getting two fo- two two forwards who primarily view themselves as power forwards who are entirely different players. That that's kind of one of the most interesting things about about these two together. In in Cesar Edwards, you have a kid who I think is going to be six foot ten, two hundred thirty five, two hundred forty pounds. And I've got bad news for Cesar, but since it isn't nineteen eighty four. That means you're a center. Um, but he's got some power forward abilities to him. He can one one way he's really interesting is in pick and roll. You can have him catch the set the screen, kind of flare out to the three point line, and then he's a capable shot maker. But what he can really do is a big man. And I think you're going to see Xavier utilize that a lot with him. And then he's a very good rebounder. He's someone, he's going to be a strong kid. So you have, he can play some four, but ultimately I think he's going to end up being a five just because he's just so naturally big. By contrast, Elijah Tucker is more who can do some three things on occasion. Um, he's kind of that six foot seven-ish type guy who can pick and pop. And then also he can really drive and pass. So he's young for his grade. I think he turns eight in may or something like that so he'll be 18 by the time he gets on campus but he's still young for the grade uh he's getting a lot better he's becoming a better athlete he can shoot he can rebound and then you know defensively i think he could he's somewhat capable of guarding a wing but ideally guarding a four but they each do something a little bit different um you know with elijah tucker he's kind of that guy who can who can match up with those four men that Providence have or, or those four men that, that Villanova has 19 of every year. And that's kind of something Xavier struggled with the last couple of years. Yeah, going back to Cesar, take us through the recruitment a little bit. How, how did that go down? I mean, Clemson, South Carolina, Florida State, I think were kind of the other teams in there towards the end. How did Xavier end up winning that recruitment? Yeah, um, you know, I'm not sure where Hartsville, South Carolina is, but I know where it isn't. And that's in like civilization. So most people would assume a small town Southern kid from South Carolina is not leaving home. And I think Clemson and South Carolina kind of took that a little bit for granted. And, you know, uh, Jonas Hayes saw him during the year, I believe, or at least saw film of him and decided this was a guy he really wanted, built an incredible connection with Cesar and just convinced him that Xavier was the right spot for him. Neil came in, the rest of the staff came in as well. And they were able to get that done. And obviously at the time when it happened, I can't remember the exact month. It might've been May or something like that. You know, there was still talk of, you know, visits being able to happen at some point in time, but Xavier got that done quickly. And as it turns, no one was able to take it and won't be for a while. Yeah, it was so, the end of June. End of June. Okay. 
So it, it became, you know, that, that became irrelevant, but at the time it was very relevant because no one thought visits were going to be canceled basically for another, you know, we're looking at another six months before that's happening again, minimal. Uh, so they got it done without a visit. Got it. I don't even know if Cesar knows what state Xavier's in, to be honest with you. I mean, it's just one of those things that, you know, like Cincinnati, Ohio to him might be the other side of the earth. I don't know. But he built just an incredible relationship with Hayes and the staff. And, and Xavier was really able to sell him, you know, the fact that they had guys moving on. There's playing time available. And then he fits the way they play. When I first saw his film, and I mean, to be honest, they're that's really the only way you could evaluate prospects this spring and summer, which I'm sure made it hard for you guys when it's time to come up with rankings and stuff like that. But when I saw his film, he stuck out to me as a guy that was maybe a cut above the type of big man prospect Xavier's usually looking at a lot of times. I mean, they've had some talented guys for sure. I mean, Jalen Reynolds, maybe one of those names that stand out, but that was a guy Travis Steele got in super early on and, and Jalen kept developing. When I saw Cesar, I was, pretty impressed with the combination of size, a decent athleticism and, and a polished offensive game, uh, at least polished enough already to where this would, this would have seemed like a really tough recruitment. I felt like for Xavier, I was a little surprised he didn't blow up more as spring and summer went on, but again, people weren't really out to see him much. What were kind of your thoughts about Cesar in terms of his ranking? And, and did you think there was, the possibility that he could have moved up? Had you guys seen him more? Or do you think uh, maybe I was a little too high on watching his film? I think you're a little bullish on the film, partly because he's playing children. Um, He did play later in the against some good teams and, and some of the flaws kind of came out a little bit more. He's not the most aggressive kid by nature. Um, He he doesn't have a great feel necessarily for what he's doing. Uh, He's just kind of getting by on raw talent. So, I think there are some holes, there are some flaws in there. You know, we're kind of exposed as he played better players more consistently in, in the months of July, August, and even into September. But, you know, he's got that talent. He's got the size and skill where it, it's hard to get. It, it's not like he was completely unknown. You know, obviously schools in the Southeast were interested. He just wasn't particularly interested in them, which was kind of unique for a kid from Hartsville, South Carolina. To me, when I look at him, I, I agree with what you're saying in terms of like his feel isn't great and, you know, he needs to become more aggressive and and uh, he could be tougher at times and some other things that you see for sure, especially like when he went head to head with Elijah Tucker, Elijah Tucker got the best of him in that matchup. But I also feel like at the same time, if he makes even modest gains, it develops as you would expect a normal prospect to develop. He also has like all league potential down the line. So, I mean, I just think it's, it's uh, a guy with a lot of upside for Xavier and a really nice get considering the circumstances. Yeah. You know, they'll take, they'll take six foot 10 dudes with skill all day long who can play inside and outside. There is no doubt about that. And then you look at Elijah Tucker and he was a guy who was a bit more under the radar. You mentioned the fact that he's young for his grade and Xavier was always looking at this as a developmental guy, a guy who's you know going to probably take a redshirt year and, and try to get better. What was it like in terms of the other schools that were recruiting him? It seemed like maybe some other high majors came in a little bit later as well, but none of them were quite as serious as Xavier. I, w- I would actually say it was the opposite. They came in, and, and this is one of the most confusing recruitments. In a pandemic year, this thing made no sense. So he had like schools like Clemson, Georgia Tech, 
um, a few others. Tennessee never really offered. Both his parents went to Tennessee. I think they were both athletes at Tennessee, if I, if I recall correctly. Uh, but Tennessee never offered, and that kind of turned the family off. And then, but there were there were these high majors that got involved early, and then they seemed to fall off. And I have no earthly idea why, considering he got significantly better. In fact, if you you point to Cesar Edwards, I actually point to Elijah Tucker as the kid who I think could have the bigger long-term impact in this class, even exceed his ranking. There's more room for failure because of his, he's not as prototypical in terms of size, but I think Elijah Tucker, you know, when I watched him play in, you know, well, you know, July, August, September, I'm like, man, this kid's really good. Why isn't Georgia tech going after him harder? Why isn't Clemson? Him? Why isn't, you know, Auburn or Alabama trying to get him? And some of that comes down to is there's a reason those teams never make the NCAA tournament because they pass on guys like this. And, you know, Xavier stayed in there and eventually Xavier beat Furman. Um, that's the reality is, you know, Xavier beat Furman for Elijah Tucker. And I have, and I'm as to why, if you're looking for a B snow, hot take scorching, Elijah Tucker's going to be too good to redshirt and is going to play double figure minutes as a freshman. Jeez. Yeah, that is quite the take. Um, Tucker, again, three-star, ranked 144. But initially when I saw his tape, my concern was I, I didn't see enough toughness and rebounding and inside play to where I was concerned that if his shot doesn't continue to develop, he doesn't, if he's not a reliable jump shooter and the passing and feel isn't quite what I think it is, seeing him on tape in high school, then what else can he give you? But then when I saw like the updated film from this spring and summer and, and the, the game against Cesar Edwards that we're talking about, he was much more aggressive as a rebounder and even blocking a, a shot from the weak side occasionally on defense and just in, in general looked more engaged and more of a imposing presence inside. And you go, you add that to what he could be offensively uh, because I really think he has a skill set that if rounded out could could be very versatile. You, you've got, you got, like you said, potentially a special player. So that's an interesting take. I didn't expect you to be quite as high on Elijah Tucker. Yeah. I mean, I really liked what I saw this summer, uh, quite honestly, and he's on the right trajectory. I'm, I'm just baffled by his recruitment. I mean, and let me make it clear. Xavier told Elijah Tucker, he's going to redshirt. Elijah Tucker is planning to redshirt. I just think when he gets to campus, it's going to be like, we can't redshirt this kid. Uh, that's going to be a fascinating storyline to watch then because you've got those two guys kind of at the same spot in the same class now. The one thing about, you know, there's a lot being made of Xavier's new system right now. And really, I don't think fans are going to see a ton different other than the personnel has greatly changed. So naturally, they're going to shoot more threes because they have guys who can actually make them. And the defense can be spread out a little bit more. So there'll be more driving lanes and, and more ball movement. And, and that stuff is naturally happening. And you're going to see that. But I think the biggest change that you've seen with the new system is the open post and the idea of trying to get guys like Zach Fremantle and Jason Carter, the ball more in like that mid-range spot where they're facing up after a ball screen, as opposed to pounding into the post like they did last year for Tyreek Jones. And that's where I think both Cesar Edwards and Elijah Tucker would be at their best. They fit into that concept perfectly. They short roll, get in the mid-range, and they can beat their man off the dribble or maybe make a mid-range jumper. Yeah, and let's be honest, throwing the ball into the post is absolutely I know fans feel all warm and fuzzy about it because it's what they grew up watching in 1987. It's just a terrible way to play basketball. 
Yeah, I don't think Xavier fans want to watch that at all after what they saw the last two years from the <laughs> offense. I think they're ready for an open post. So, and, and it's even worse when Tyreek Jones is the guy you're throwing it to in the post. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. but yeah, I mean, each of them, and like, I know like coaches love to sound like the smartest guy in the room. I'm going to change my system. Like, <laughs> right. you've got different players. Shut the hell up. I mean, like, it's not that big a deal. Like, you've never run the same system two years in a row in your life because your players change. You're not changing your system to your players. You're a bad coach. Yeah, exactly. And I just think this is kind of, and especially after you see this recruiting class, I think this is more the style Travis Steele wants. And this is the fact that he has recruited a couple more big men that play this kind of way shows you that that's probably his more ideal style if he gets to choose but again it all comes down to what talent you can get you know i mean if they could have gotten a a seven foot shot blocker who you need to slow it down a little bit more for they i'm sure they would have done that as well um yeah like had they landed logan duncombe from moeller guess what they're not running an open post with logan duncombe on the team right like yeah perfect example talking about those guys initial roles I, i had initially kind of thought coming in here Cesar might be the backup four behind Ben Stanley because you have Zach Fremantle and Deontay Miles still at the five um, to to play. And, you know, that's where Cesar's minutes would likely come. But interestingly, you brought up this thing about Tucker now. So how do you see these guys initially fitting in in terms of their role? You know, that's what would be interesting. Like, I view Cesar as a five. I don't want to hear it. Yeah. That's not what Xavier told him. That's not where they're going to start him out. I just think eventually he's going to, it's going to become obvious to all involved, like the five, right? Like you're, you're big. You're going to be a big, you're not, you know, (laughs) it's just, sorry, it's reality. So eventually I could see him, you know, I could see them, you know, putting him at the four for the first few weeks of practice to make it seem telling them the truth, but you know, he'll, he'll rotate down. Um, In terms of the backup four, I mean, Ben Stanley will be the starter. I think you could see Zach Fremantle getting, you know, sliding over to some four, especially if they like where Deontay is or if Brian Griffin comes back or, or what have you, you know, I, there's, there's so many moving to that, but I just think Elijah Tucker's going to be right in that mix. And, and Xavier's going to, I think they could have a really interesting cost benefit analysis of, of redshirting Elijah Tucker versus not. And my, as I said, my guess is they're going to come to the conclusion. We can't redshirt this kid. We'll see if that turns out to be true. That's just my hot. But I, I think he could win those backup power. I think Elijah Tucker could win those backup power forward minutes. And then in, in terms of Cesar Edwards, I think he'll be competing for kind of that, some of those backup minutes at the five, depending on, you know, what all shakes down with who comes back and who doesn't. Yeah, that's interesting. Cause I was, I was originally thinking like, look, both these guys are going to be young big men that are going to need time they're not Elijah's probably going to sit out as a red shirt and then Cesar not going to play a ton of minutes especially when you've got some veteran front court guys ahead of him I thought it might be the perfect time to tell him hey we're, we're playing you at the four this year as a freshman you're learning the four you get you know 10 minutes a game backing up the combination of Fremantle and Stanley and moving forward as a sophomore he ends up at the five and Elijah's a four but I could easily see it happening a lot quicker than that after the first few weeks of practices as you mentioned I think the other thing you know everyone when their favorite team lands a prospect they always want to move him up a position you know like for instance if it's a five they want him to be a four if it's a four they want him to be a three that's always the question can he can he play more on the perimeter and to me it's like a guy like Cesar Edwards 
he kind of wants to be more of a finesse guy, a guy that uses his athleticism. He doesn't want to dominate a, a smaller player in the post. So moving him to the four and having like a smaller, quicker guy guard him doesn't really help him. He's better off if he has the biggest, slowest guy on the court guarding him. And I think the same for Elijah Tucker. He doesn't, he's not aided by having a wing guard him when his, his superpower is the fact that he's a four who can stretch you out and make some plays. So I think both of them are much more suited to play against bigger players and you'd rather keep them at the four and five respectively. Yeah. I mean, the way you create mismatches in basketball is by going small, not by going big. Right. Uh, no greater example than whenever Xavier plays Creighton the last two years. <laughs> exactly. Uh, Brian, was it surprising to you at all that Xavier didn't end up with a, a scoring wing in this class? Yeah. I was more surprised that they didn't see the need more than anything. Um, in fact, I have no earthly idea why they didn't see the need, but they, they just kind of felt there was no great need to add another wing. They didn't want too many guys on the roster. It was a whole bunch of things. And quite honestly, they, they recruited everybody like a backup plan. And shockingly, when you recruit kids like a backup plan, they, you don't get them. And that's exactly what happened. Do you think that says a lot about how they feel about Colby Jones and CJ Wilcher and I guess maybe even throw Adam Kunkel kind of that mix too, because he'll probably be playing a lot at the two. Um, no, just because they didn't even really know at the time. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they made that decision before they ever see that saw the kids play on. Right. So I don't think you could point to that. Um, I don't know what the hell it was. <laughs> I mean, I, I would love to give some great insight here, but I can't figure out what the hell they were thinking. Well, maybe that's a good transition in talking about the, the current team now. Since they have been in action a little bit, we've gotten some feedback you know, from the people we talked to inside the program, and I even got to see them scrimmage this past Saturday. Not to brag. Well, yeah, I'm not bragging. It's just a fact. I got to see them um, <laughs> along with 285 students. And honestly, I will say, I have never felt so bad for college students as a 30-year-old as I did at 11 a.m. at the Centa Center when students were there 15 minutes early, all super respectful of the social distancing, sitting there by themselves on their phone. A ref comes out. They start cheering for him like these kids have nothing to do right now. It's got to be awful being a college student in 2020 in November. I, I mean, watching that scrimmage, it was never more apparent of how bad college life must be right now. But neither here nor there. Uh, now yeah. that we've seen them a little bit, do you think – they they made the right call here that they really do have uh, two freshmen that are definitely going to need to play on the wing as sophomores. And uh, maybe it would have been a little crowded. I mean, of course it would have been a little crowded, but like, I mean, damn, like you're a twisted ankle away from being in some problems. I mean, I just don't get it there. There's you could have friggin' Michael Jordan and LeBron James out there and I'm still not going to understand it. And I don't think Colby Jones and Michael Jordan and LeBron James. So that said, they, I know the staff thinks that they hit on both of those kids and that they're going to be really good. And I think they are firmly behind the decision they made. Now that's not to say, you know, they wouldn't have taken a kid. Absolutely. They would have, but you know, they missed and then they walked away from others and that's just the reality. Um, But they definitely are very, very confident in Colby Jones and CJ Wilcher. Um, You know, Colby, I, 
I'm not sure if he's, I'm assuming Xavier's practicing this week. You never know, like with COVID and all that. I mean, there are, according to their pictures yesterday, they were practicing and Colby Jones was back in action. Yeah. I mean, like those could have been old pictures. Let's be honest. <laughs> like, and I'm not, I'm not even saying anything like, like I know, I'm just saying like, you know, you just don't know. Yeah, that's true. Um, and, you know, since they're a private school, they don't have to release any information. Uh, so I'm assuming they're practicing. I know if, if it was a real game this weekend, Colby would have played, but there was no no reason to have him play just for the sake of it. And there are people in the program who would absolutely start him game one. That, that's how highly they think of him. And let the record show, they also think highly of, of Johnson. They just think Colby's that good. So clearly that, that shows confidence in Colby. And then, you know, C.J. Wilcher has his unique skill set. Rick, I know you were sitting up in the bird's nest there, but the video that Xavier's social media team made, I I thought C.J. Wilcher looked in really good shape. That that was the thing that shocked me about him. And you've seen it in pictures, but sometimes, you know, it's like, all right, well, they're lifting weights. Of course, you know, their their arms are going to look pretty good whether they're in mid-pump. But, like, CJ looked way thinner than I've ever seen him, like kind of almost cut. And, you know, we've compared him to guys like Miles Davis and Trayvon Blewett, but the reality is those guys were definitely not in anywhere near this shape as freshmen. And it took him a while to really get into shape that looked like this. I'm not saying he's a great athlete or anything, but he definitely was moving better than I've ever seen him at the high school level. And his body is in much better shape than I expected to be at this point. I, I thought he was one of the, the standouts of the scrimmage because it wasn't, he only hit, I think, two threes, but it was the feel. It was him getting in the mix and rebounding and being tough. He just looked like a basketball player and like he belonged. And he's he's so confident, it's similar to the way Miles was when he first came in, that he just, he's ready to go right now. I think you could play him and, and you'd get production out of him. And, and that's important because, you know, with exceptions, freshmen just don't shoot well from three. I mean, Miles Davis went Ofer's last 45 or whatever it was. That was unbelievable, honestly, yeah. looking back on it. And then, you know, Trayvon, I think, was what, like 31% from three as a freshman? Something in that, in that neighborhood. I mean, sure, Brad Redford shot 50% from three as a freshman. He's a, clearly a rare exception. Um, even like James Blackman, who is as good a pure shooter as I've ever scouted in high school basketball. Now his overall numbers look good as a freshman, but in big 10 play at Indiana was something like 29, three. And keep in mind they're, they're playing some non-conference games, but not many this year. Um, so the odds are CJ Wilcher's not going to shoot great. So in order to get on the court, he's going to have to do other things. And the fact that he was rebounding now he can really pass when he chooses to, you know, he's got kind of that feel to him. That makes it easier for the staff on the court. Yeah, and you know, that's that's a good point too because there was another moment that stood out where he's in transition and it was kind of a moment where he had an opportunity to, to try to go. Like he could have tried to go to the rim. He could have pulled up on his own. He, he kind of was open, but there was like one defender for him and he saw Kunkel run in the wing in stride, hit him with a perfect pass and Kunkel buries the three. And it's just kind of like that thing where it's, he's a willing passer. He has that feel to get a guy involved. Um, everything he did in the scrimmage just looked like he was ready to play. And even defensively, he's not going to be good defensively. I don't think maybe later in his career, he'll be, he'll be solid, but like he didn't look bad. He was not a liability out there. Um, and some other guys were, so I, I thought it was a really good performance by CJ Wilcher, but Brian, look, looking at the minutes, how they break down. Look at, I mean, look at Kiki Tandy catching some ricochet from you. 
that's that's unfair. I didn't name names. Uh, <laughs> let's let's talk about how the minutes would break down though for 21-22 potentially. If you're talking about you've got Dwan Odom, who again looked great in the scrimmage. I think everyone's very high on Kiki Tandy. They're gonna play, they're both gonna play the one, but let's be honest, Tandy's probably gonna play the some of the two with him. You've got Kunkel playing the two some. Uh, then you have CJ Wilcher and Colby Jones at the three. Yeah, I mean, I guess if, if you get one injury, you're you're getting a little thin, but if at the same time, if you have one more body who who feels like they need to play, are you at risk of running them off again, you know, like a, a Damier Bishop situation? Yeah, I mean, it, it's all and for the record, you said 2021, he means 2122. Um, yeah, but it, it's all a give and take. I just felt you were kind of short and you could get to being where you want to get to. Now, I guess if Nate Johnson returns for a six year, uh, of which he will have that option, I have no idea if he'll take advantage of that option, but you know, th- then that changes the, you know, the, the equation a little bit. So we'll, we'll see. I mean, there's so many balls in the air right now, so to speak, and juggling and, trying to figure out what your roster is going to look like when you have no idea. But yeah, I mean, they got players they really like on the perimeter and, and more importantly for them guys who can, who can shoot baskets. Yeah. I I said 2021 as referring to like that recruiting year, you know, starting next fall. Uh, I I appreciate your correction. Nonetheless, keeping me uh, on my toes. Um, Fact Fact check. We, we, t- we talked about the the new look again. I I think they are going to play faster. The stuff Travis Steele has been saying, I don't think is like the Mick Cronin lip service that you got for 13 years. I think they are going to play fast this year. There will be better ball movement. Uh, they will shoot more threes. Again, I think the big the most noticeable thing for the fans will be the big men facing up a little bit more and, and keeping the post a, l- a little more clear. Brian, the defense obviously has to improve from what we saw on the scrimmage on on Saturday. But one of the things I also think everyone, including the coaches, are going to have to understand is that if you're going to run in transition and you're going to shoot more threes and there's going to be long rebounds and things like that, you're going to be susceptible to giving up some transition points too. There's a give and take there. I mean, you you got to be better. You, you got to tell your guys you got to be better. At the same time, if they're going to actually play this style, they have to commit to this style. Yeah, and that that's actually the question we have to have with Travis Steele is he says the right things. He says, this is how I want to play. He, you know, talks the talk, but at the end of the day, is he going to let him, is he going to let him rock? And he's never done that as head coach. Now, I think most of that's by necessity. When you let the last two teams rock, they threw the ball into the 15th row half the time. But, you know, it's an unknown. Can Travis Steele you know, not call 16 million sets until he proves that he can't. We can't just assume that. Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's one thing to be doing an intra squad scrimmage where everyone's doing the same thing. You're not calling any sets. It's totally different to get into games where it's close in the second half and he's trying to get a win and see if he doesn't tighten up all of a sudden. So yeah, is he going to give him the J right, you know, 10, uh, the 10 signal, which is just two hands up saying, stop Stop. (laughs) slow down is he going to try to do that or is he going to or is he going to do the greg mcdermott which is you know come on go 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 you know like we'll we'll see what we'll see what old steel ball is like when the live bullets are flying brian i think one of the the questions a lot of the fans are going to be 
still nervous about, regardless of how many times they hear it, is how much better is the three-point shooting actually going to be with this team? I'll say on Saturday, they shot over 40% on over 30 attempts combined. Uh, now, granted, when you have Adam Kunkel going six for 10, that helps. But the, you know they definitely shot the ball well. The ball was moving. They were taking good looks and getting good looks. How confident are you that three-point shooting is is going to be where it needs to be this year? I, I think it'll be fine. Um, here's what you know. You know Paul Scruggs is a 37% three-point shooter. No human on the planet has proven as a three-point shooter in college basketball quite like Paul Scruggs. He's not 38%. He's not 36%. He is 37%. Uh, Kiki Tandy can make shots. We know that. Um, Nate Johnson can make shots. We know that. No idea on Colby Jones because that's still the most confusing situation in the history of America. And then, you know, Zach Fremantle, I think, is a threat. Assuming Ben Stanley is eligible, I do believe he is a threat as well. Um, They're always going to have shooters out there and proven shooters. So I it's a major issue. Also, their internal numbers and, and, you know, there's no way I don't have direct access to them, but their internal numbers have been very good in terms of, you know, they track every shot in practice. I don't think that's a secret. And basketballs have been going through the rim at a much higher rate than they did the previous two years. So, yeah, and, and that's not a surprise at all because just it was, you could see anyone could see it that went to practice. I mean, for the most part, if you go to a college practice, guys make a lot of wide open shots. So you would think everyone's really good. But the last few years at Xavier, I mean, and this is, by the way, Quentin Gooden makes shots at practice. So this is with yeah. Quentin Gooden making some. They were a bad shooting team, and you could see it. Uh, this year, it's it's different. You know, I think it, it's back to looking like a college basketball team should. The concern is a lot of those guys are young guys and newcomers, and how many of them are going to be on the court and making an impact? And like you brought up, I mean, I think the lineup you start out there with, if nothing else, guys are a threat. And last year, the best way to guard Xavier's best players was to just not guard him at all on the perimeter and clog up the driving lanes and make sure Tyreek Jones didn't have any room to operate or overpower you and be in a good position to rebound. This year, you're going to be playing with a little bit more fire if you're willing to slough off shooters and go under screens and pack the paint so much, especially considering Xavier's not going to have anyone in the paint. So, yeah. I mean, um, that it's just going to be different. You know, Najee Marshall's not going to be checking the air pressure on the ball 52 times every possession. Um, and Najee's a hell of a player. Let's not get that twist. But boy, is he hard to play with. And yep. the, that's a, you know, in that way, it's kind of like Samaje Kristen. You know, no one on Xavier's team was better than Samaje. Yet when Samaje left, they became a much better team. And it's not because Samaje is a bad player or a bad person. He's just hard to play with. Yeah, well, there was, they were also dealing with a talent deficiency those first couple of years in the Big East with them. Well, one year in the A10 and one year in the Big East with them. Yeah. But I, I think you'll see some of that as well, where it's just like not having that just insanely ball dominant dude helps everyone else get in rhythm. Yeah. Um, uh, two more questions here about the current team. I'll start with the big men. What what should people expect out of the bigs? I think everyone understands Zach Fremantle is going to be either this team's best player or their second best player. What do you expect from everyone behind him? That's a really good question. Um, I know they think Ben Stanley's an absolute stud. 
I don't know what he showed in the scrimmage, Richard, but I know practice-wise what the players are saying. They think Ben Stanley's a stud. Now he's got some things to figure out on defense, which isn't surprising, but they think he's a beast. Uh, Jason Carter's had some good weeks here recently. Um, so that they like him maybe as like an eight and seven, 10 and seven type of guy. And then, you know, the backup five position, while they don't necessarily know who it's going to be, you know, they're like, well, we know Brian Griffin can really rebound. He's got to get better defense, but he can really rebound. And then Deontay miles, you know, still not there consistently yet, but there's still a lot of good things that you see. So they at least feel they can throw Deontay miles in the game and he can bring a little something different. Now, do you want to have him play 25 minutes a game against Nate Watson? Probably not. But he's still probably their best NBA prospect on the roster. So uh, it, it's going to be interesting to see how it all shakes down. First of all, do they get Ben Stanley eligible? I know there's a lot of confidence that they will, but until that happens, it hasn't happened. And if Stanley is eligible, I think you were to see Carter Stanley and Fremantle get the majority of the front court minutes with Griffin and Miles fighting for, you know, kind of the scraps, so to speak. Yeah, and I think the way they're going to do that Miles-Griffin rotation right now, I'd say those guys are probably about even. Now, they're diff- very, very different in how they play. And and like you said, Griffin a lot more consistent in what he does, but limited. And Miles, there's moments, six-minute stretches of practice where he's the best player in the gym, and then he just fades for three days, you know, things like that. But I think those are kind of those two guys are kind of on even footing right now in terms of the pecking order. I think both of them are going to get minutes. If there's a matchup thing that works better or one seems to be playing better at that, that time, they're going to get more minutes than the other. And eventually one or the other is probably going to play themselves into kind of the main backup role. And the other is probably going to lose out minutes for this year, at least. But the, the interesting thing to me is what happens with Ben Stanley as a rebounder, because it was a concern I had for him on film in the scrimmage. He was really, had no impact on the glass. He just wasn't too involved on the boards. And yet he is this physical monster. And defensively, I actually feel fairly, fairly confident he can guard the post. Like he's so strong and his height doesn't look as, as concerning as I thought it might. He was listed at like six, seven, I think. And I'm expecting that to be more like six, six when you see him in person, but he looks, you know, not too far off what Brian Griffin looks like to be quite honest when you, when see the, those two uh, standing next to each other. So, I could even see, you know, some cases where you got Zach Fremantle guarding the four for you and you got Ben Stanley guarding a five potentially. But again, he's going to need to rebound for them to be able to play a little bit smaller. Otherwise, you're you're probably going to need more minutes out of Brian Griffin and Deontay Miles, I think. Yeah. And how, how Ben rebounds is it. That's an effort issue, obviously. It, and I don't say effort isn't not playing hard, but effort isn't just go to the glass every possession. And that's a skill. Uh, when you're in the big, sometimes rebounds kind of come to you if you're athletic. Well, um, and I think the other thing is he was such a focal point of their offense, you know? So like, and 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 not not that all, you need him to defensive rebound more than you need him to offensive rebound, but I just think like he wasn't a role guy who felt like that was as much his job. And you just kind of see that a little bit. Like he watches shots go up a little bit too much and then he plays hard on both ends otherwise, but he yeah. just he has to be more physical on the glass. Yeah, you just got to go to the glass. You just got to go. Yeah. Um, it, it's that simple. Uh, so he's he's got to be a threat in that regard. Uh, he doesn't need to be Tyreek Jones rebounding, obviously, but they need him not to get pumped. Um, 
So there's that. Uh, and also, I think people think Ty- what was Tyreek Jones listed at last year? Six nine. Yeah, he's six six and a half probably. Yeah, on a great day. So, I mean, Ben Stanley. I've seen him in person. I'd probably give him six six. You know, as Tyreek Jones was an inch taller than him at best. So I think he can handle guarding the five. Maybe not ideally at times, but he is. Uh, he's my body double. So you know, he's in peak physical condition, and he'll be able to handle that. All right. So talking about Stanley, if I gave you the option for this year's team, you can only have one of them eligible. Who do you take Ben Stanley or Adam Kunkel? Ben Stanley. No question. Why? And I say that because you have Paul Scruggs playing the two. I think that makes sense. Like Paul Scruggs is 32 minutes a game or whatever it's going to be. Like he just is. And DeWan Odom's your best point guard, but Kiki Tandy's your best kind of raw scorer. So you want to have some time with them together. I just think it makes, if you can only have one, you're going to choose Ben Stanley because he's more unique than, you know, what Adam Kunkel is relative to the players around him. Yeah, especially for this season. And uh, I, I will say after watching the scrimmage, it's clear those two guys help a lot. I mean, they just make you more experienced, more, you know, with Stanley, it's more physically imposing and you look just the part a lot more. And with Kunkel, the feel and the shooting is, is obviously a a big deal on offense. So those two guys would definitely help. But like you mentioned, it's going to be harder to get Kunkel minutes this year, next year, it's going to be a whole lot easier. So um, I think, I think both of those guys, they got it right on without question. Those are, those are both going to be impact players for them. Well, you just got to be sure that just got to make sure Kunkel doesn't transfer to UC after the year. Well, that's a good point. It's a, it's a stash and dash. I think they call that <laughs> move by the John Brandon. Brilliant. If you can get it, I'll give him that. Uh, Snow, anything else on the current team before we wrap this one up? Zipper noise. All right. Well, uh, again, Wednesday signing day for the Musketeers. We have premium content up at musketeerreport.com. Brian has a, a piece up about, you know, what went right, what went wrong, and and the work still ahead for the Musketeers. So be sure to check in there and the message board for all of our premium coverage as well. You've been listening to another edition of the Data Victory Podcast, only available on musketeerreport.com. For the legend, Brian Snow, I'm Rick. Thanks for listening, everyone.